All right, we are back. As promised at the top of the show, we at this point are going to uh, go with our uh, primary legal correspondent, I guess you would say. Uh, Stephen Harper is an adjunct professor of law at Northwestern University and our go-to guy for things related to, well, I, I hate to say it, but Donald Trump, and also things related to the Supreme Court. And I think at this point, we should start with the second topic. And to do that, I would say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Stephen Harper. My pleasure. It's been a long time. I hope you had a good summer. Uh, yeah, it has been too long of a time. We talked a lot about the Supreme Court and some of its uh, oddities uh, in one of our most recent shows. And I know they've now put out an ethics code. Uh, the Week magazine is calling it a toothless new ethics code. And so I think this is a good place to start and ask you about, about what's going on. Well, I would call it an ethics code that is so filled with holes you could easily drive a luxury RV through them. How's that? Well put. The sad part about this is that, well, there are lots of sad parts about it, but the, one of the sad parts about it is that we know that as far back as 2019, four years ago, uh, they were working on this. And the best they can come up with, and, and it's clear to me that they they had to go through all kinds of of uh, contortions in order to get Alito and uh, Thomas to sign off on this thing, just filled with holes. There's no, there's really no enforceability at all. Um, there are a couple of novel new provisions uh, that that would sort of astonish a you know a typical sitting federal judge in the uh, district court or in the court of the of appeals. One of which is what is what's called the rule of necessity. And the rule of necessity is if it's really, really important for you to stay on the bench, then no matter how bad your conflicts are, you can stay on the bench. No matter what terrible things may have happened, because ultimately at the end of the day, the decision whether or not to recuse yourself because of the appearance of, of impropriety, well, that's really up to each individual justice. So you go home, talk to, talk to Ginny, talk to your benefactors, and then decide whether the case is is one that you should recuse yourself from. The irony, of course, it's, I don't know if it's an irony or paradox, is that that is likeliest to be an issue in the cases that are the most significant. Right. So it's it's so much it's so important. I have to stay involved um, because, as Roberts, and this is the way they. I guess I shouldn't say Roberts. It's the entire court, but he, you know, he's clearly he's going to be responsible for this. This he, this is all part of the of the sad legacy that he's created for this institution. It's really, really important to have a full complement of Supreme Court justices so we can have this, this, this engaging of minds on these, on these important issues. And if you recuse yourself, my goodness, there's no one to replace you. And then we're down to just, you know, eight justices instead of nine. And wouldn't that be terrible? You know, if, if, if somebody who's been sort of you know, traveling the country in a luxury RV that he made one payment on, and 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 all of a sudden he finds himself, you know, presiding in a case or involved in a case where he's got to decide issues where that person who who funded his 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 RV has an interest. Boy, I I better stay involved. It's really important that they that this this rigorous exchange sure. of minds uh, occur with with me being one of the one of the leading lights, uh, you know, on the court to be, to be, it's, it's ridiculous. So they, they built in an ethics override button. 
That's right. It's an override <laughs> button, and you get to control it. So it'd be as if you said to somebody, look, you if you go in and rob that bank, that's probably something you really shouldn't do. But if you do rob the bank, there's nothing we're really going to do about it. So you decide whether you think you should rob that bank or not. The other thing about it is that it goes through an elaborate series of hoops, rhetorical hoops, to essentially retroactively authorize a lot of the scandals that have that have plagued the court uh, in recent years. And I have to say, you know, Sonia Sotomayor uh, was using her clerks to help, you know, do things to promote her book. Um, that's not anything that you could ever get away with in a lower court. You can't use your chambers to promote uh, financial interests. But she gets a pass, a retroactive pass under under this one. And same thing with with Alito. You know, he he went. I, I don't know if you remember. I, your 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 listeners may remember, but he he went in after there was. I think it was ProPublica was going to do this expose of how he had gotten you know free rides on private airplanes from a you know from a billionaire. Right. And uh, he went on. He he went just before, or maybe it was simultaneously with the publication of that article. He did a. Sort of a pre, what he thought was a, I'm sure, a preemptive strike in the Wall Street Journal and in the, the op-ed pages, saying, you know, we're not accountable to anybody. We, you know, Congress has no control over us. We get to do what we want. You know, the, we're the, we're the supreme law of the land. And oh, by the way, you know, as far as that flight, you know, that flight I took on the billionaire's plane, that was, you know, that that wasn't anything that needed to be reported. Because if I hadn't been on the plane, then it would have been empty. Right. So I didn't take anybody's seat. No. Which is sort of like, huh? <laughs> what? Very sound re- uh, legal reasoning for a Supreme Court justice. Yeah, right. And so he now gets in this code of ethics, and I don't even think you should call it a code of ethics. It's a, it's a code of get out of get out of ethics free card, um, and it 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 gives it gives him it retroactively says that, you know, that's all okay because the uh, justices have confirmed by signing this code of ethics that they have each individually uh, complied with the statute governing financial disclosure, you know. Well, that's in there to get Alito to sign off on it. So undoubtedly, you know, Roberts, who probably probably wanted something like this, had to go through, through, through such a series of of, of watering down of what would really be an ethics code in order to get every justice to sign off on it, that what you're left with is really nothing. And, and unfortunately, now they have this so-called code of ethics that they can now hold up and, and say, see, I'm in compliance. We're good. We're good. Well, but then again, it's it's self-administered. If they say I'm in compliance, no one can challenge it, and and no one can can institute any sort of remediation if 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 there's a consensus by anyone else that well, I'm sorry, that's not the case. You could have eight justices go to one justice and say, "Hey, you know what? You got to recuse yourself," and he can he could flip the bird and say, "Never mind, yeah, I'm staying." Yeah, let's let's talk about that. As we've talked about in previous episodes of the show with you, uh, Ginny Thomas was one of the leading lights of the effort to say that the election had been stolen and Trump should just take the steps necessary to retain the office. And she's married to a Supreme Court justice who then failed to recuse himself when matters uh, regarding this came before the court. 
Right, and was a and was a dissenting vote when the court said it wasn't going to hear. I can't remember which one it was, but one or two of the cases that actually made its way to as far as a you know petition for for hearings for certiorari, and um, you know the, the other justices were saying there's no no you know without comment we're we're not going to take it, which is typically what the Supreme Court does when it refuses to hear a case because it has wide discretion in whether or not it hears a case. And Thomas says, you know, I think we should hear it. He issues a separate dissent, says, yeah, we should hear this case. Uh, and you're absolutely right. Ginny Thomas, you read you read the text messages that she was sending to Mark Meadows, the Trump's chief of staff at the time. Um, I mean, they were they were essentially essentially in a virtual uh, prayer session with each other about, you know, do keep doing God's work. You know, you know, we're we're in the right and. And it literally, you know, pr- you know, prayer type sessions that this was a, some sort of divine command that they were carrying out and and in trying to keep Trump in the presidency. Well, yeah, lest anybody forget also that uh, back in the year 2000, when there was an election uh, brouhaha between Bush and Gore, the Supreme Court basically stepped in and appointed George Bush president. With the, yep. with the reasoning by Antonin Scalia that, well, you know, if we didn't do that, the Bush presidency might be under a cloud. <laughs> it's yep. just like... Yep, yep. And, and, but it was very careful to note in the majority opinion that this particular opinion, that is the Bush v. Gore Supreme Court opinion, uh, would not be precedent for anything else. This is a, a now, one-time only punch this ticket. You know? as, as a law professor, I would ask you, how many other cases like that have you ever heard of? By the, from the Supreme Court, I haven't heard of any. Uh, I mean, there may be some out there. I'm not an expert on, right. on the Supreme Court, but there, uh-huh. so there may be one or two. There may be some out there. I don't know, but I mean, the, the most important case, arguably, of uh, you know, in recent memory, and you know, you're deciding the president of the United States, and you, you you're but you're deciding in, in in such a way that you want to make sure that the case is never cited for anything ever again as precedent. Um, it's, it's ridiculous. And by by the way, speaking of speaking of people who wanted to keep uh, Trump in office, um, our, our esteemed new Speaker of the House, uh, Mike Johnson, was leading that charge too. There was a really interesting article in today's New York Times about he was the guy who was working perhaps harder than anyone else, albeit behind the scenes, in organizing. Rep- members of Congress to sign on to a brief uh, that was that went all the way to the Supreme Court and they, they they refused to hear it, challenging the election, trying to keep trying to keep Trump in office. Yeah, Mike Johnson has has been a phenomenon since we last spoke, and and that uh, with with the lower, I mean, he's now the next in line after the vice president to the presidency. Yeah, and I'll tell you what's scary about that. He's, he could well be in a position in January of 2025 if you had a situation that we almost had in 20, uh, 2021 where there, there was sufficient, uh, uh, I don't know if doubt or, or uh, indecision in terms of the outcome of the election itself that it went to the House of Representatives. Well, as Speaker of the House, he would have a lot of control over you know what reached the floor of the house what gets voted on what doesn't get voted on 
what procedures get followed. Sure. Now, I'll give you the nightmare scenario. It's January 25th. There still is no president because we're still in limbo. At that point, Biden and Harris no longer are no longer in office. They, they're gone. After the inauguration date that's set in the United States Constitution, okay. um, they have to leave. So there's no president, there's no vice president, and guess who's president of the United States at that point? Mike Johnson. There you go. Well, doggone it. You know, it's a tough job, but he may just, if they just can't get the business of Congress ratified, he may just have to step up. That's right. <laughs> That's it. Only for his country would he do this, you know? This is no joke. I mean, I, I just, it's, I mean, if, if the Supreme Court, I think we have every reason to suspect that if there is some legal falderall and made-up nonsense challenging election results and it gets the Supreme Court, uh, it seems reasonable to believe they are going to, they will rule in favor of, of Trump, assuming Trump is the nominee, and that's looking increasingly likely. Yeah, the only thing that gives me some hope on that is that is that they have, in fact, not ruled in favor of Trump. That is, they've either declined to take the case. I think in most cases, I think in general, they've declined to take the case. Um when he's had some of these, you know, his lawyers have made some very goofy arguments in these cases that he's involved in. Um, and, and can you, can you think of a few of the goofier ones? Because that that might be good for uh, some amusement. Well, different, different, different arguments about whether he could avoid having to testify, whether he could have prevent other people from from documents. The one that's going to get there next is going to be all this gag order stuff that's coming out of the proceedings where he's. Basically, inviting death threats, you know, to to uh, right. people who are prosecuting him, to uh, you know, even to even to court uh, court employees, um, and you know, it, it, people say, oh well, you know, it's the First Amendment; he should be allowed to do whatever he needs to do. But I'll tell you, you know, if 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 Trump puts you in the crosshairs, it's it's. It's dangerous. I mean, it's it's really dangerous. Well, I, I'm and, no legal scholar, but I, I, my understanding is you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. <laughs> so you, there yeah. are there are some limits to your First you, Amendment rights. Yeah, and you can't yell, go shoot the judge. <laughs> um, oh, you shouldn't. You know, that, that's another one. I knew when he announced for the presidency that one of the reasons, one of the, one of the plays here uh, for him was going to be to, to use that as a reason why, as a presidential candidate, um, you had to you had to have special rules in terms of things that you could or couldn't do to him in terms of restraining his behavior, uh, in terms of you know trying putting him on trial that sort of thing. And uh, and sure enough, you know here we are. Here's the tragedy of it. One of the reasons that he is, I think, as successful as he has been in using these. Various. He's got. We're talking about a guy now who's got, who's facing four lawsuits, ninety-one felony counts, um, and any normal person like you and I probably wouldn't even be out on bond. And yet, because of the way he undermined, you know, institutions while he was president, there are vast, vast numbers of Americans in the millions who. Who follow him and are, are 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 loyal to him, because he has undermined completely their their confidence in the most basic fundamental 
institutions of our government, the, the ones that we need to survive, the courts. Right. And, um, and so as a result, every time, you know, some, they do something, and of course he, he has this ongoing mantra of, you know, persecution and politicizing the Justice Department. I mean, my goodness, talk about a guy who politicized the Justice Department. He's promising to, to make it even worse um, if he's elected uh, in terms of going after his enemies. I think we can avoid talking about the fact that he's ramping this up on the speech he gave on, on Veterans Day. He yeah. was using a language uh, indistinguishable from that of Hitler or Mussolini. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's not hyperbole. He was talking about the vermin that live in this country and how they need to be dealt with. And it's, it's very fascist. 100%. Absolutely correct. And, you know, it, it, it's very interesting to me because the evolution of this has been pretty stunning. Back in 2016 or 2017, I can remember, you know, writing articles on very uh, on Trump, and and you know I would have editors and others say to me, "Boy, you know this, whatever you do, don't compare him to Hitler, don't compare him to Mussolini," and I kept telling I kept telling people, "Look, that's the comparison here. You know, if you if you look at listen to what he says, listen to how he says it." Look at the look at take a look at the expression in, on people's faces and the and the and and the way they they look at him. This is this is the beginning of a cult that is extraordinarily dangerous. And if you don't identify it and call it what it is, it's sort of like you remember for a long time, the New York Times refused to say that that when he when he lied, they refused to call it a lie. This was a right. a, a misstatement. A a false statement. Well, right. no, it's a lie. Okay? Right. It's just call it what it is. And and this sort of, which is ironic, because here's a guy who basically says, you know, with one of the real problems of this country is we have all this political correctness. You know, there's too much political correctness. Well, it was the, it was a kind of political correctness that caused respected publications like the New York Times to go for way too long before calling his lies lies right but they were always lies and there were lies from the beginning and you're absolutely right the, the way to understand what's happening now i think and this is a problem of our of our disdain our, our societies developed a disdain for for the study of history in terms of education but go back to to germany in the in the 30s um go back to the way people behave go go back to the way despots, you know, one after the next, you know, took over. There were there were financial crises there that sort of, that's where everyone sort of says, well, that's what, you know, laid the groundwork. But people now are, look, but people are going to look back, historians will look back in, at this period and say, there was something different going on here. You know, in the 30s, 20s and 30s, what you had were, after the Depression were people who were fearful, and they were looking for strong people to help them out of financial depression. What they're going to see when they look at this period, I think, is they're going to see they're not people. We don't have people who are fearful. They're angry. And they, they may be fearful in a different way. They're fearful because things are changing. They're angry because things are changing. They're angry because you know, there's increasing uh, diversity, frankly, in our population. And they don't know where that's going to leave them. You know, isn't this a white person's country anymore? But the parallels between 
you know, what's happening in the 30s in terms of who they look to for help, who they respect, are very, I think, analogous to what's happening now. I got to tell you, I was listening recently, and I can't remember where I was hearing this, but I was, I was, I'd had a, a, a books on tape version of, of someone reading William Shire's The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. And yeah. they were describing things taking place in the 20s. And, you know, all my, all my life I, I've sort of puzzled over what happened in Germany, thinking it as an intellectual exercise, like, well, how could a country have just, ever, could it possibly have gone so wrong? And, and that's, yeah. that's still a question, but listening, but listening to it again, it was a whole different ballgame, like, oh, oh, yeah, it, it doesn't seem as alien now as it did. Right. Uh, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and we are, as a society, uh, and Trump in particular, you know, we're, ch- we're checking all of the same boxes. We're checking all the same boxes. Now, the only, the only solace I take from all this is that, um, you know, history does go in cycles and it goes in waves. But I'll tell you what, uh, I don't think the world wants to go through the wave that we had to live through in order to get past Hitler. And what he and Mussolini and, um, you know, go down the list, you know, despots all over. Um, Right. And and you look at what's happening in Europe now and you can say, "Uh oh, what what in the world? What's going on in the Netherlands? Where that how how that far right guy, you know, make it to where he is? Aren't they a sane country? Well, Argentina is not a sane country, but but necessarily, but they've done the same thing, I guess. Yes, exactly. I do wish in the historical sense we would now start referring to the January 6th event as a putsch because Hitler's beer hall putsch, uh, to my mind, has some curious parallels. Well, sure. And, and of course, now what you have is, is, is Trump's ally, Mike Johnson, uh, Speaker of the House, releasing 44,000 hours of tape of everything, you know, all this stuff that was going on on January 6th, and, and you're seeing... You're seeing a complete, I mean, literally a rewriting of history that is a complete distortion of what happened. And you're going to see, you know, bits and pieces. They're going to pull out little bits and pieces. And, and it's, it's very hard to correct um, misimpressions once they hit, you know, a, a, the public psyche. You know, it was uh, uh, Jonathan Swift, I think, who said, you know, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its boots. Yeah. Um, and and that's already happening. I think who was it? Marjorie Taylor Greene put up some clip that supposedly showed uh, that 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 what was happening on the six was a, an inside job. And look, here's a guy holding a badge. Turned out he wasn't holding a badge at all. He was. He, it was. It was a complete phony. It was a vape complete pen. Fake. I understand. Yeah, complete fake. Com- complete nonsense. And a complete lie on her part for promoting it, to, you know, in the way that she promoted it. Well, before Trump left office, we had some discussions talking about how this man is going to face numerous legal challenges, and and these yep. might really derail his political career. Well, the legal challenges are on right now, but his political career is still going seemingly pretty strong. I, I guess I would ask, as we're wrapping up here today, of all this four-ring circus going on— uh, which what what episodes do you think are going to be be the most harmful to him? The January sixth trial in D.C. Okay, I think that's the that's the big one. George is kind of interesting because uh, you know the, so many of so many witnesses have flipped down there. So many of his former allies have flipped, and uh, uh, you know 
plea deal, taking plea deals. Uh, that has made that a little more interesting. And the other thing that makes that interesting is that if Trump were elected and he, he could and he pardoned himself, it wouldn't apply to a state cr- criminal conviction. Right. Um, and if he in, and if he instructed his Justice Department to drop all of the federal cases, which would include the January 6 case, uh, that would not include the Georgia case either. So Eileen Cannon down in Florida, she might as well be a be a member of the Trump campaign for the way that she's going to uh, has been and will continue to conduct that proceeding. So I don't expect you know I don't know what'll happen there, but my guess is that she'll keep pushing that off, and he, that trial won't even happen until after the election. January sixth is the one I would. Uh, okay. Is that I think that's the one. I think that's the ball game. And of course, the fact that you raised the, the point correctly, uh, it doesn't seem to have dented his uh, popularity, at least among the Republicans at He's all. He's the front runner. Of, He's the front runner right now. Yep. Yep. And 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 that's exactly right. And. And that goes back to what I was, what we were talking about earlier, which is he's so undermined the institutions. You can't reach the people, the 40 percent, whatever the number is, um, of, which is probably, what, 20 percent of Americans, 40, 45 percent of Republicans. It is impossible to penetrate to get the truth, to get just facts into those people's heads. No, Absolutely I know. Absolutely impossible. Totally impossible. There's and, a guy in my uh, neighborhood. I talked to him about this, and his theory is that you know this whole thing was a put-up job by you know uh, Black Lives Matter and a lot of other radical uh, leftists. Yep, January 6th was an inside job, right? <laughs> yep, sure was. That's why that's why you had the Republicans themselves cowering in fear, you know, crouched in under desks and and running to safe zones in the Capitol on January 6th because it was all a Everyone knew it was all an inside job, and there, there was never it was never really a problem. It was some peaceful protesters. Yeah, peaceful protesters. Yeah. yeah. Wow. By the way, did Gin, has Ginny been involved in any of these? Has she been called in? No, no. Are you surprised? No, I don't know. Okay, I, I don't know. But I don't. You know, no one needs her. You, you don't need her. It, it would be a circus sideshow, I guess, to bring her in. And frankly, the proof that they need. To, to convict Trump, the proof that's necessary to convict him, uh, it won't come from her anyway. Okay. Uh, I don't think. I don't think it would, would necessarily, I don't think anyone would need her as a witness. Thank you for the update, Stephen J. Harper. Before you go, please plug some of your websites, because I know people are going to are gonna want to read more up on what you've, what you've been saying. Sure. Um, the, the easiest way to get to my website is uh, thelawyerbubble.com. Uh, or you can use my name, too. That works, too. They all take you to the same place, Stephen with a VJHarper.com. Um, what they'll mostly find there now are are, uh, are the project that occupied me for most of the summer, which is that there, the Northwestern University, my alma mater, is, is, is going to tear down a 100-year-old stadium that's a few blocks from my home and drop in its place a full performance venue larger than the United Center, larger than, you know, just a little smaller than Wrigley Field, where we're going to have concerts going, It's and it's a travesty. Uh, not so much that they're going to replace the football field, but they're, they're going to commercialize this whole area in a way that's going to just dramatically, dramatically um, affect the quality of of a quiet, peaceful suburb that has churches and 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 playgrounds and p- children's parks. 
and so that that's what they'll find. But, but it's an it's an interesting study in how how billionaires work. You know, the, the <laughs> pen may be mightier than the sword, but apparently it's not mightier than a billionaire's ability to influence local government. Well, we'll have to have some future talks about what's been going on here in California along those same lines. It's been very discouraging, to, you know, to see um, how this works because. The whole thing is a vanity project for a billionaire who, ironically enough, is, is extraordinarily conservative, and the Northwestern is not, and the community in which the stadium is built, Evanston, is a, is a very liberal, diverse community. But you find the five soft votes that you need you know, in order to get approval, ask them what they want, and guess what? You know, money talks. It's, um, it's unfortunate. Yeah. It's just unfortunate. Well, we'll see. Well, we're, we're five weeks away from 2024, the election year of 2024. So uh, why don't we plan on having you come back early uh, next year and, and, and see where, we're, where this is all evolving. Yeah, maybe we'll have some interesting primary elections by then. Who knows? Maybe there'll be a third party in the picture that'll throw the entire election into the House of Representatives and we can all talk, we can all talk about President-elect Johnson. Excellent. That sounds like a great plan. Oh, man. I'll call you from Canada or Switzerland if that happens. Yeah, and I hope we don't have RFK Jr. to thank for that. That's a story for another day. All right. Well, always a pleasure, sir. And I I thank you again. And let's, let's, uh, let's talk come next year. Sounds great. Thanks. You have good holidays. You too. Our thanks to Guy and the good people who continue to operate KDVS in Davis. Talk to you soon.